Thanks. Well, welcome to Emmaus Church. My name is Nathan. Happy to see you here. Welcome with us today. Uh, let's see. Raise your hand if you like a Bible. We'll hand one to you if you'd like one. I'm going to be in Matthew chapter 3 in just a minute, the very end of Matthew chapter 3. Also, if you're on an end of a, of a row and there's a basket underneath it, your seat. Would you hand that down? And if you'd like, you can grab one of our like brochures out of the basket, or if you're new with us and would like to hand off contact information, there are cards in the basket, and you can easily fill those out and hand it off in a little bit if you like. That'll help us to just introduce ourselves and stay connected if you'd like to. I'm so uh, glad that you're here with us today, and um, looking forward to spending some time here. It's the second Sunday of Lent. We're leaning into the story of the baptism and the temptations of Christ, and um, I'm just going to begin with the word this morning. It's on page 676 in the Bible that we've handed out, way down at the bottom, second column. All right. Matthew writes this, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment... Heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So imagine now, it's about a year later, Jesus and his disciples are gathered around a campfire. It's late at night. They're talking about the events of the day, discussing the successes and the failures, the victories and the disappointments. And like they often did, the disciples are just trying to figure stuff out. Why did this person receive the good news, whereas this person seemed to refuse it? Why did these people embrace the truth that we proclaim while other people seemed like disinterested in it? They couldn't even stop walking by. Why were some people like longing for healing and deliverance? Other people seemed to refuse um, any kind of offer to be changed. In fact, seemed to cherish their addictions, seemed to kind of enjoy their injury and their dysfunction and hold it close like it's part of their identity. Jesus, what was going on behind the scenes this whole time? And why does it always feel like it's such a battle? And then imagine Jesus says to them, listen, I want to tell you something that happened to me about a year ago. Before I called all of you to myself, right after I was baptized by John, the Spirit of God led me into the wilderness. And I didn't eat for 40 days, and I was tempted by the devil. And I can just imagine that the disciples, you know, the firelight illumining their foreheads, and then they kind of furrow their brows and their eyes squint, and they're like, what in the world? Because they weren't there. Jesus was alone. The only reason he, the, we know this story is because Jesus shares this story with his disciples, but he's now just doing it for the first time, and he begins to roll out the events of those days. And I can imagine this mix of curiosity and concern kind of, taking shape in the faces of these men gathered around a fire. And Jesus continues, yeah, for 40 days, I was tempted. And on the 40th day, Satan said to me, if you really are the son of God, then take these stones and turn them into bread. 
And I imagine the, the eyes of the disciples widening and their minds wondering. And I imagine the, those among them that are kind of wired for confrontation, just kind of the ones that want to take it all by force, like Judas or like the sons of Zebedee, John and James going, well, did you do it? Like, did you take him, did you like take him out with that? I mean, because you've done it before, right? You've demonstrated your authority over nature before. When at that wedding, you told us about that wedding in Cana when they ran out of wine and you turned water into wine. Oh my gosh, the servants' eyes must have bugged out of their heads when they're carrying these jugs of water and all of a sudden it turned deep red. Did you turn the rocks into, into, into bread, Jesus? Did you do that? Oh, I would have loved to have seen that. And then I imagine like the more quiet ones, the more contemplative ones, leaning in and just locking in on Jesus' eyes and going, wait a minute, how is it even possible that the Messiah could be tempted by the devil? And just hanging on his last words. And then I can imagine Jesus slowly and deliberately telling the story of his temptation which we just started to read in Matthew, and it's also recorded in Mark and in Luke. This strange story about his very personal battle with evil in the wilderness. And the first question, I just want to ask a couple questions this morning. The first is this, why did Jesus tell him this story? It very easily could have just been completely lost. It could have been seen as just something for Jesus. None of these guys were there. They only know, we only know the story because he told them. Why did he tell them the story? I think there are two reasons. The first is Jesus told his disciples the story because he wanted them to know he was tempted. He wanted them to know he was tempted. This was a real battle. According to Mark and Luke's accounts, the temptation actually begins as soon as Jesus steps into the wilderness. Matthew seems to write as though it, there's 40 days of fasting and then the temptation begins. Mark and Luke point to this fact that there's temptation the whole time. But by the 40th day, it's clear Jesus is hungry. His body needs food. He wants food. He's craving food. He needs it. And now uh, to use his own power to turn rocks into rolls would ease the pain for the moment, wouldn't it? It would. It was a shortcut and counterfeit solution for a deeper need. And Jesus knew that. He knew that. But the fact remains that he was tempted to do it. He was tempted to do it. Turning stones into bread, in other words, was a bad option, but it was an option. And so there was a wrestling match there. He was tempted. And this fact is well established by Jesus, apparently, because the truth that is handed down through the church about this story is clear on whether or not he was actually tempted. For instance, the writer of Hebrews puts it like this, we do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. So the first reason that Jesus tells his followers about this story is to reveal to them the depth of his humanity. He knows what it's like to be tempted in every way because he has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And where Jesus succeeds and where we often fail is in depending on the power of the Holy Spirit rather than depending on his own power to, in a strict sense. In other words, he actually succeeds at being truly human. 
at being a creator, a creation of God who is made to live independence on God for their power, for their strength, for their substance. This is what Jesus is demonstrating. And what we rarely do, that is, depend on the power of God because we're so self-centered, because we think we're so self-sufficient. So that's the first reason I think Jesus tells his disciples he was tempted in the desert. He wants them to know he was tempted. And then the second reason that Jesus tells them the story about the 40 days of temptation is because he wants them and he wants us to learn from his experience. There's a fourth century Christian pastor named John Chrysostom, and he writes this, Jesus's temptation was for our instruction, for our instruction. So Jesus is sitting around the campfire with his disciples. He tells them this wild kind of out of their imagination, spiritual, deeply personal story because he wants them to know he was tempted and he wants them to learn from his experience. And friends, these are the same reasons I tell my boys stuff about my life that might initially seem a little bit surprising to them because they've only known me as a dad. But I tell them some of these sometimes a little bit, you know, not so proud moments in my life because I want them to know I've been there. I've faced what you're facing right now. I know how it feels. I've been there. And I want them to learn from my experience, right? I want them to benefit from the battle that I've been through and to gain from that experience. Same reasons I tell my boys what I've told them, which leads to the second question for this morning. What is it that he wanted them to learn from his 40 days of temptation? What is it that Jesus wants us to learn from his 40 days of temptation? In short, I think he wants us to learn some things about the nature of evil so that we can overcome it. So what I'd like to do is share six insights about the nature of evil. And even saying that makes me want to qualify it. I don't, I don't want to bring attention to evil for evil's sake. Um, my hope is to talk about evil and the nature of evil in order for us to see it with greater clarity. In the same way that I have taught my kids how to identify poison oak, how to recognize a rattlesnake, so that we're on hikes together, they are crystal clear. I know what that is. I know what that is. There's no confusion here. I know what that is. So that's my spirit in reflecting on the nature of evil together this morning. First insight into evil. Evil is no joke. Evil is no joke. And this is, this is the problem with Satan. It's, we don't take seriously what we believe to be made up. We don't take seriously what we believe to be made up. I wonder if an exaggerated focus in our culture or even in the church on the devil has led to a lack of serious regard for evil. It would be no wonder if it did, because the cultural images associated with Satan are ridiculous, right? They include like a college mascot or a silly Halloween costume or the cartoon caricature of the alternative to the nice guy on your shoulders, Right? This is the stuff of fairy tale. This is joke. This is a total joke. 
It's very difficult for me. If this is what I think of when I read scripture about spiritual evil, no wonder I have a hard time taking it seriously because I can't take this seriously. These modern images are a joke. And medieval images aren't much better, in my opinion. The images that you get in medieval art are, you know, you recognize the, 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 the figure because it's been so kind of entrenched, this sort of scaly man with a weird tail, maybe wings and a horn and a hoofed feet. It's not much better. This also feels to me to be kind of, it sort of communicates this sense of we're pretending, right? We're presenting sort of this caricature of something to a degree that almost makes it challenging for me to take it seriously. It's important for us to know, friends, that these kinds of images, they have no basis in the Bible. They have no basis in the Bible. Their source is medieval literature, stuff like Milton's Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno. That's where the devil is described physically, not in the Bible. In the Bible, most of the time the devil is mentioned, there is no physical appearance described. Now, famously, in Genesis 3, the tempter is a talking serpent, and that figure is traditionally viewed as the devil, and these apparently reptilian characteristics of this snake influence imaginations for generations and for centuries. But it's interesting to look at what's actually in Scripture about this character. In the Old Testament, the word Satan shows up 18 times. 14 of them are in the book of Job, which is a really unique and interesting book. Most of the time, the word Satan shows up in the Old Testament. It's preceded by a definite article, so it actually is the Satan. And the word means adversary. So an accurate translation of every occurrence of the word Satan in the Old Testament could be the adversary. The adversary. And, kind of interesting, by the way, the Satan is not God's adversary. Did you know that? He's Job's adversary. He's your adversary. He's my adversary. So it's not, strictly speaking, accurate to say it's God versus Satan. It's you versus Satan. It's Satan versus humanity, which is why the showdown in the desert takes place with Christ who has become a man, because the showdown is between humanity and Satan. On Friday, I was in Detroit, and they've got this great t-shirt in Detroit. It says, Detroit versus everybody. <laughs> I love it. I got to get one. Um, and that's sort of this, what, what this is. This is like Satan against everybody. Um, nothing disrespectful about Detroit there. The analogy is just that. Uh, in the New Testament, Satan occurs 36 times. 28 of the 36 has the definite article, the Satan. In addition, there's another word, diabolos, translated the devil, used 34 times. Apparently, satanas and diabolos are interchangeable. The devil and Satan, same sort of thing. We never get a physical description of this person, this, this, this thing. We get metaphors which create images in our mind. That's what we get. So like, for instance, Jesus compares the devil to a robber. Peter compares the devil to a lion crouching, ready to devour. Paul says the devil masquerades, wears costumes, and appears like an angel of light. So these are the images we're given. 
their metaphors. So one thing that Jesus wants to teach us about evil is that it is no joke. Medieval and modern depictions of the devil may seem like a joke, but don't confuse that guy with the guy who is tempting Jesus in the desert. Why? Because the guy tempting Jesus in the desert is the same guy tempting you today. And that guy is no joke. That evil is no joke. Now, that was quite a bit on the first point. The, the next will be quicker. Uh, second thing about Jesus' story about, about his temptation and what it reveals to us about the nature of evil is that evil seeks vulnerability. In other words, Satan doesn't play fair. He's not a gentleman. He will shoot you in the back because that's where you're vulnerable. He will punch you in the face even if you're wearing glasses because he has no class. In the fourth century, there was a theologian named Theodore the Interpreter, which is a killer name. And he writes this, it was precisely when Christ hungered that the devil made his move to tempt him with bread. Of course it was, because he's a snake, right? Because he seeks vulnerability. Evil's not going to walk up to you, look you in the eye, shake your hand, introduce himself, hi, I'm evil. Are you ready for your temptation today? It's just another way it's going to happen, right? No, he will seek out the most, like the perfect time when you're at your weakest to exploit your greatest vulnerability. The devil does not play fair. He goes after children and people in grief. Doesn't come around when you're strong. Waits till you're tired and weak. Waits till you're alone and sad. Waits till you're frustrated and getting bitter, and then serves it right up. Told the guys in our Tuesday morning Bible study this last week about this time I was in college, and with some friends, I traveled to an away game, a basketball game at another college. And as we drove into the parking lot, right in the nick of time, we realized it's going to be tight. The place is packed. There's a ton of people here. We get inside the building. We're trying to get in line to buy our tickets. The game has already started. It's super intense. We're hearing people say there's almost no seats. There's almost no seats. Then the people selling tickets start letting their own classmates cut in front of us. And I'm getting ticked off. I'm thinking all kinds of bad thoughts about the person selling tickets. So I finally get to the front. And I look him in the eye and I hand him a 10. The uh, tickets were $7. I hand him a 10. He hands me 13 Change for a 20. I see what happens right away, and in my mind, I think, serves you right, you jerk. <laughs> right? And I stuck it in my pocket, and I walked in, and I watched the game. And the reason I remember this so clearly is because a couple days later, I couldn't get it off my conscience, and I had to confess it to my mentor. Um, but man, it was the perfect sort of scenario for me to fall into this kind of, this kind of sin, and don't get stuck on the, if you're like, that's not a bit. There are bigger deals in my life, okay? There are other examples more shameful I could share with you. Uh, but the point of this specific thing is not the point. My point is that evil seeks vulnerability. And this was, a, this was like a perfect opportunity. In an ideal sit, uh, situation, I would have said, oh, whoops, you gave me too much change. I know I would have because I had in the past. I'd done it before. But this was not ideal circumstances. This was the stress of a crowded parking lot mixed with the injustice of all these people cutting in line in front of me, mixed with this us versus them atmosphere because it's our school against their school. And it made me vulnerable to this exact and specific temptation of dishonesty in regard to finances. 
The point is that evil will seek vulnerability. Something that will hardly touch you on Sunday will take you out on Tuesday morning because you're vulnerable on Tuesday morning. That's the only difference. You're vulnerable on Tuesday morning. Evil's not going to show up on Sunday afternoon. It's going to show up on Tuesday morning. In Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus in the desert, he ends by writing, then the devil left him until an opportune time. Do you know when the opportune time is? Or was? Any guesses? Yeah, right. It was the night before the cross, right? He's alone. He's asking everybody to pray with him. They can't keep their eyes open. He's in the garden. He's like, please, God, any other way, Father, that this can happen, take this cup from me. He overcomes it. He says, not my will, but yours be done. But then he comes back to his disciples. He wakes them up and he says, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation because the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. And he knows they're vulnerable. And two of them crash that very night. A third observation about the nature of evil is that evil is deceptive. It's deceptive. It tries to get you to believe lies. It presents as true things that are not true, just simply put. Here's an example of how this rolls out. It's all over scripture, but here's an example. In Genesis, God says to Eve, you may eat of any tree in the garden, except that one. If you eat that one, you're going to die. The serpent begins his deception by twisting what God has said. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree? You see that? And Eve responds correctly. No, we may eat from any tree in the garden. She's right. God did say you you must not eat from that tree in the middle of the garden. She's right. And you must not touch it. Little exaggeration there. She's slipping. You see that? Little exaggeration. If you touch it, you'll die, she says. Again, she's right. Serpent responds. You won't die for sure. You won't die for sure. End of Matthew 3, the father says, this is my son, I love him, I'm pleased with him. First temptation begins with Satan saying to Jesus, if you are the son of God, right? Just calling it into question, questioning the truth of something. Evil is deceptive. It wants to confuse right and wrong. It wants to trick you into believing. It's not a big deal. I've got it under control. This isn't going to hurt anybody. It's natural. Everybody's doing it. It's totally fine. Satan takes most of us out by deceiving us into making gods of our basic appetites, like our desire for food and sex. He's got most of us squared away just with that alone. Isn't it interesting that the serpent uses food to tempt Adam and Eve, and he returns to that very same play in the playbook with Jesus, for at least for round one? Because it's very basic, it's very subtle, it's only a little bit off. What do I mean by that? Food is good, but, de- but evil is deceptive. Evil is deceptive. So if you, you know, and this is what's so silly, it's almost silly to talk about it, because if you knew that what you were doing was going to lead to such destruction, you wouldn't do it. But you don't realize it in the moment because the fruit just looks so darn good, right? And it tricks you. It's deceptive. It's tricksy, right? Paul refers to, uh, to, to this evil when he's talking to his followers, and he says, flee from the evil desires of youth. 
Like, don't even try to deal, run away, run away from sexual temptation, he says, right? So there, there's a point at which you are not likely to be deceived if, in fact, you're turning your back on the deception and running away from it. And there are some things which you should simply recognize evil is deceptive enough that I ought to be, you know, I ought to have real close to my, um, you know, available to me as an option. I'm just running. I'm just running away from this. Evil's no joke. It seeks vulnerability. It is deceptive. A couple more. Evil is destructive. It's destructive. Did you know that Satan cannot create? Did you know that evil cannot create? Evil can only take the good that God has created and twist it. The devil is not creative. The devil is not generative. The devil is destructive. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Evil deceives us into believing things are going to be better when we distrust what the Father has said and we decide to do it our own way. The Bible calls that sin, says it leads to death, always. Evil cannot be blessed. Your life will not improve, ultimately, by embracing evil. Evil cannot create a better future. Evil is destructive. It's destructive. Fifth, evil is progressive. It's never satisfied. It's never enough. It always wants more. So evil thoughts become evil actions. Gateway drugs lead to hardcore drugs. So-called soft porn gets more and more eroticized, more and more explicit, and you're looking at hardcore porn. It's always progressive. This is the nature of evil. It's like a forest fire. It grows, it consumes, it intensifies, it progresses, it takes out everything in its way. So evil is deceptive, it is destructive, and it is progressive. And finally, I think Jesus told his disciples this story, and I think he tells us this story because he wants them to know, he wants us to know, evil is defeated. Evil is defeated. Jesus does not give in to evil. He relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. He quotes the word of God. He chooses to believe what the Father has said is true. I'm going to reject what Satan is saying to me as false. And in the process, he overcomes and defeats evil, and he shows us how to do it as well. Evil is defeated in the desert. Evil is defeated in the desert. Jesus is the Son of God. He knows he's the Son of God. He demonstrates that he's the Son of God in the desert. Case closed, it's done. Luke writes that after the temptation of Christ in the desert, after the 40 days, Jesus returns to Galilee, that's like his home area, in the power of the Spirit. He returns home in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. John writes that the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. First John. One ancient theologian I read this week says this, the devil goes out to tempt people. But in this case, the 40-day temptation of Christ, he says, it was Christ who went out to confront the devil. And I love that. Led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. It's like, come on, it's going to happen now, right? There's going to be a, conf a confrontation in the desert, and we're going to see what's true and what's false. 
One theologian says that the devil and his demons from this point on carry around this air of defeat for the rest of the gospels. Like they've just been beat down. Like, oh, please, Jesus, have you come to torture us before the appointed time? Like, please send us into the pigs. There's this sense in which they're defeated for the rest of the gospels. There's a last gasp at some sense of victory in the end. Jesus wants us to know evil is no joke. It's bad stuff. It's destructive, deceptive, progressive. But please, don't ever forget this. Evil is defeated. It's defeated by Christ. Now, I wrestled with this this week. My concern has been all week that by focusing on the nature of evil in this teaching, many of us would leave feeling tragically and ironically defeated because we have given into temptation so much and because we have not taken evil seriously enough. And so our actions have hurt us and they've hurt others, including those that we love the most. And I just want to make sure that I, I'm trying to communicate my point in teaching about evil this morning is not that we would feel defeated. It's the very opposite. My, my hope is that you would feel hopeful, that you would feel hopeful that you could confront evil with clarity. I know, I know what that is. And with confidence, this has been defeated. This has been defeated. Jesus, my king, took care of this already. I don't have to wrestle with this as though it has the power to, because oh, it doesn't. The, the power that is in me is greater than the power that is in the world. That we would, like our true king, return to our homes, return to our schools, return to our places of work, return to our day-to-day, full of the power of the Holy Spirit. We would see evil for what it is. What is it? It is a perversion of the good. It is the work of the devil that we would know that Jesus came to destroy the devil's work. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Because of Christ's victory over evil, we can overcome evil as well. This is why he tells us the story. This is part of what he wants us to know. Friends, in the oldest Christian baptismal prayers, there is a section in which those who are being baptized renounce evil in all of its forms. Did you know this? They would publicly speak to evil, renouncing Satan and his work right before they are baptized. And as they renounce evil in all forms, those assembled as witnesses would shout, Amen! Amen! And so I want to invite you to renounce some evil with me this morning, right? You cannot have this body because it has been devoted to serving Jesus. Amen? Amen. You cannot have this soul. It has been purchased by the blood of Christ. I belong to him. Amen? Amen? You cannot have my marriage. I've committed it to Jesus. God's in the middle of it. It belongs to him. Amen? You cannot have my family stay away from them. They are devoted to you, God. Amen. Keep your hands off my boys. I dedicated them to the living king. They belong to him. Amen. Don't touch my daughter. She is a daughter of the living king. Amen. Amen. You have no place in this church. This is the house of God. These are the people of God. You stay away from this place. We renounce you. Amen. There's no place for evil in this town. 
We stand against evil. We renounce it. We declare that Christ's kingdom is coming here now as it is in heaven. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray together. Oh God, I pray for grace for those of us in a battle, tempted by stuff that's not even true, tempted by stuff that will kill us. I pray for the grace to believe the truth. You have overcome the work of the devil. You've overcome evil. You're stronger than this, this thing that has just beaten us up so many times. I pray for the Holy Spirit to empower your people, Lord, that we would be able to walk in confidence and hope. I know what that is, and I know it's defeated. It has no life in it. God, fill us up with your grace. Enable us to live in confidence and freedom. I pray, Lord, that your truth would reign here, that love and freedom would reign in the lives of these, my brothers and sisters who are here. I pray, Lord, that you would protect those in vulnerable places today, those those who are grieving, those who have received really bad news and they're fragile right now. God, would you protect them from this sadistic, unfair, twisted voice that wants to bring disaster in their life. I pray for the goodness and the love of Christ to reign in us and around us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.